Chapter 22 Victory Over the World Through Faith For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. 1 John 5 4. The discussion of this text naturally leads us to ask four questions. Roman numeral 1. What is it to overcome the world? Roman numeral 2. Who are they who overcome? Roman numeral 3. Why do they overcome the world? Roman numeral 4. How do they do it? These are the natural questions that a serious mind would ask upon reading this text. Roman numeral 1. What is it to overcome the world? 1. To overcome the world is to get above the spirit of covetousness that possesses the people of the world. The spirit of the world is eminently the spirit of covetousness. It is a greediness after the things of the world. Some worldly people covet one thing, and some another. But all classes of worldly people are living in the spirit of covetousness in some of its forms. This spirit has supreme possession of their minds. The first thing in overcoming the world is that the spirit of covetousness in respect to worldly things and objects must be overcome. The person who does not overcome this spirit of rushing and scrambling after the good that this world offers has by no means overcome it. 2. Overcoming the world implies rising above its attraction. When a person has overcome the world, his thoughts are no longer absorbed and swallowed up with worldly things. A person certainly does not overcome the world unless he gets above being preoccupied and absorbed with its concerns. We all know how exceedingly preoccupied worldly people are with some form of worldly good. One is consumed with study, another with politics, a third with getting money, and a fourth perhaps with fashion and with pleasure. But each in his chosen way makes earthly good the all-consuming object. The person who gains the victory over the world must overcome not just one form of its pursuits, but every form. He must overcome the world itself and all that it has to present as an attraction to the human heart. 3. Overcoming the world implies overcoming the fear of the world. It is a sad fact that most people, and indeed all people of worldly character, have so much regard to public opinion that they dare not act according to the dictates of their consciences when acting in such a way would incur the popular disapproval. One person is afraid that his business might suffer if his course runs counter to public opinion. 
Another is afraid that standing up for the truth will injure his reputation. And he strangely imagines and tries to believe that supporting an unpopular truth will diminish and possibly destroy his good influence. As if anyone could exert a good influence in any possible way besides maintaining the truth. It must be admitted that great multitudes of people are under this influence of fearing the world, yet many of them are not aware of this fact. If you or they could thoroughly state the reasons of their reluctance in duty, fear of the world would be found among the main reasons. Their fear of the world's displeasure is so much stronger than their fear of God's displeasure that they are completely enslaved by it. Who does not know that some ministers dare not preach what they know is true, and even what they know is important truth, afraid that they would offend some people whose good opinion they seek to retain? The institution might be weak, and the favor of some rich person in it seems indispensable to its very existence. Therefore, the fear of these rich people is continually before their eyes when they write a sermon, or preach, or are called to take a stand in favor of any truth or cause that may be unpopular with people of more wealth than piety or conscience. This bondage to a man is sad. Too many gospel ministers are so troubled by it that their overall policy is virtually renouncing Christ and serving the world. Overcoming the world means to completely overcome this bondage to men. 4. Overcoming the world implies overcoming a state of worldly concern. You know there is a great state of care and concern that is common and almost universal among worldly people. It is perfectly natural if the heart is set upon securing worldly good and has not learned to receive all good from the hand of a great father and trust him to give or withhold according to his own unerring wisdom. However, he who loves the world is the enemy of God and therefore can never have this filial trust in a parental benefactor, nor the peace of soul that it gives. This is why worldly people are almost always in a high state of anxiety for fear that their worldly plans would fail. They sometimes get momentary relief when all things seem to go well, but some misfortune is certain to happen to them at some point soon, so that hardly a day passes that does not bring with it some gnawing anxiety. Their hearts are like the troubled sea that cannot rest, whose waters stir up mire and dirt. However, the person who rises above the world gets above this state of ceaseless and gnawing anxiety. 5. The victory under consideration implies that we cease to be enslaved and in bondage to the world in any of its forms. There is a worldly spirit, and there is also a heavenly spirit. 
and one or the other exists in the heart of every person and controls his whole being. Those who are under the control of the world, of course, have not overcome the world. No one overcomes the world until his heart is filled with the Spirit of heaven. One form that the spirit of the world assumes is being enslaved to the customs and fashions of the day. It is amazing to see what a goddess fashion becomes. No heathen goddess was ever worshipped with costlier offerings, more devout reverence, or more complete subjection. Certainly, no heathen deity since the world began has ever had more universal support. Where will you go to find the man of the world or the woman of the world who does not rush to worship at her shrine of fashion? Overcoming the world implies that the spell of this goddess is broken. They who have overcome the world are no longer careful either to secure its favor or avoid its displeasure. The good or the bad opinion of the world is to them a small matter. Paul said, With me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, or of man's judgment. 1 Corinthians 4.3 It is the same with every real Christian. His concern is to secure the approval of God. His main concern is to yield himself to God and to his own conscience. No one has overcome the world unless he has attained this state of mind. Almost no characteristic of Christian character is more noticeable or more decisive than this. Indifference to the opinions of the world. Since I have been in the ministry, I have been blessed with the acquaintance of some people who were especially distinguished by this quality of character. Some of you may have known the late Reverend James Patterson of Philadelphia. If so, you know that he was profoundly distinguished in this respect. He seemed to have the least possible desire to secure the approval of men or avoid their condemnation. It did not seem to matter at all to him to gain the approval of men, for it was enough for him if he pleased God. Therefore, you were certain to find him in everlasting war against sin, all sin, no matter how popular and no matter how entrenched it was by custom or sustained by wealth or public opinion. Yet he always opposed sin with a most remarkable spirit, a spirit of inflexible decision, yet of great graciousness and tenderness. While he was saying the most severe things in the most plain language, you might see the big tears rolling down his cheeks. It is wonderful that most people never complained of his having a bad spirit, as much as they dreaded his rebuke and winced under his strong and daring exposures of wickedness. They could never say that James Patterson had any other than a good spirit. 
this was a most beautiful and remarkable example of having overcome the world. People who are not dead to the world in this way have not escaped its bondage. The victorious Christian is in a state where he is no longer in bondage to man. He is bound only to serve God. Roman numeral 2. Who are those who overcome the world? Our text gives the quick answer. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. You cannot fail to observe that this is a universal premise. All who are born of God overcome the world. All these and therefore it is obviously implied that it does not include any others. You may know who are born of God by this characteristic. They overcome the world. Of course, that answers the second question. Roman numeral 3. Why do believers overcome the world? On what principle is this result achieved? This victory over the world results as naturally from the spiritual or heavenly birth as coming into bondage to the world results from the natural birth. It might be good to go back for a moment to the law of connection in the latter case, that between coming into the world by natural birth and bondage to the world. This law obviously allows for a rational explanation that is at once simple and apparent to everyone's observation. Natural birth reveals to the mind objects of sense, and these only. It brings the mind into contact with worldly things. Of course, it is natural for the mind to become deeply interested in these objects presented to it through its external senses, especially since most of them sustain such an intimate relation to our conscious nature and become the first and primary sources of our happiness. Therefore, our affections are gradually entwined around these objects and we become complete lovers of this world before our eyes have been opened upon it many months. Alongside this universal fact, let another be placed of equal importance and not less universal, namely, that those inherent powers of the mind that were created to become aware of our moral dealings, and therefore to counteract the too great influence of worldly objects, come into action very slowly, and are not developed so as to act vigorously until years are numbered as months are in the case of the external means of sense. The very early and vigorous development of the latter brings the soul so entirely under the control of worldly objects that when the reason and conscience begin to speak, their voice is little heeded. As a matter of fact, we find it universally true that unless divine power intervenes, the bondage to the world brought upon the soul in this way is never broken. 
The point that I specifically wanted to explain was simply that natural birth, along with its accompanying laws of physical and mental development, becomes the occasion of bondage to this world. Right next to this lies the birth into the kingdom of God by the Spirit. By this, the soul is brought into a new relationship, or we might rather say that the soul is brought into intimate contact with spiritual things. The Spirit of God seems to guide the soul into the spiritual world in a manner strictly similar to the result of the natural birth upon our physical being. The great truths of the spiritual world are opened to our view through the illumination of the Spirit of God. We seem to see with new eyes and to have a new world of spiritual objects around us. As in regard to natural objects, which people not only speculate about but realize them, so it is in the case of spiritual children, in which spiritual things become not merely matters of speculation, but also full and practical realization. When God reveals Himself to the mind, spiritual things are seen in their real light and are viewed as realities. Consequently, when spiritual objects are thus revealed to the mind and believed, they will especially interest that mind. Our mental makeup is such that when the truth of God is completely understood, it cannot fail to interest us. If these truths were clearly revealed to the wickedest man on earth so that he would understand them as realities, it could not fail to stir up his soul to most intense action. He might hate the light and he might stubbornly resist the claims of God upon his heart, but he could not fail to feel a thrilling interest in truths that so firmly take hold of the great and fundamental things of human well-being. Let me ask if there is a sinner reading this, or if there can be a sinner on this whole earth who does not see that if God's presence were made as obvious and as real to his mind as the presence of his fellow humans is to him, it would seriously consume his soul, even though it might not subdue his heart. This revelation of God's presence and character might not convert him, but it would, at least for the time being, deaden his attention to the world. You often see this in the case of people deeply convicted of sin. You have undoubtedly seen people so fearfully convicted of sin that they cared nothing at all for their food or clothing. They cried out in the agony of their souls, What do all these things matter to us if, even if we get them all, we must end up in hell? But these stirring and all-absorbing convictions do not necessarily convert the soul and I have alluded to them here only to show the controlling power of realizing views of divine truth. When real conversion has taken place, and the soul is born of God, 
then realizing views of truth not only awaken interest, as they might do in an unrenewed mind, but they also tend to excite a deep and fervent love for these truths. They draw out the heart. Spiritual truth now takes possession of the person's mind and draws him into its warm and life-giving embrace. Previously, error, falsehood, and death had drawn him under their power. But now, the Spirit of God draws him into the very embrace of God. Now he is begotten of God and breathes the Spirit of Sonship. Now, according to the Bible, the seed of God remains in him. 1 John 3, 9. And that very truth and that moving of the Spirit, which gave him birth into the kingdom of God, continue still in power upon his mind. Therefore, he continues a Christian, and as the Bible states, he cannot sin because he is born of God. 1 John 3, 9. The seed of God is in him, and the fruit of it brings his soul deeply into harmony with his own Father in heaven. Again, the first birth makes us acquainted with earthly things, and the second birth makes us acquainted with God. The first with the finite, the second with the infinite. The first with things correlated to our carnal nature, the second with those great things that stand connected with our spiritual nature. Things so lovely and so glorious as to overcome all the entrapments of the world. The first birth brings about a worldly nature, and the second a heavenly. Under the first, the mind is brought into a snare, while under the second, it is delivered from that snare. Under the first, the conversation is earthly. Under the second, our conversation is in heaven. Philippians 3.20 Roman numeral 4 How is this victory over the world achieved? The great power is the Holy Spirit. Without Him, no good result is ever achieved in the Christian's heart or life. The text you notice says, This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. The question might be raised, Does this mean that faith of itself overcomes the world? Or is the meaning that we overcome by or through our faith? Without a doubt, the latter is the precise meaning. Believing in God and having impressions of His truth and character made upon our mind by the Holy Spirit given to those who truly believe, we gain the victory over the world. Faith implies three things. One, perception of truth, two, an interest in it, and three, the committing or giving up of the mind to be immersed in and controlled by these objects of faith. Perception of the truth must come first in order. 
for there can be no belief of unknown and unperceived truth. Next, there must be an interest in the truth, which will wake up the mind to fixed and active attention. Third, there must be a voluntary committing of the mind to the control of truth. The mind must completely surrender itself up to God to be governed entirely by His will and to trust Him and Him alone as its own present and eternal portion. Faith receives Christ. The mind first perceives Christ's character and His relationship to us. It sees what He does for us, and then, deeply feeling its own need of such a Savior and of such a work wrought in and for us as Jesus alone can do, it goes forth to receive and embrace Jesus as its own Savior. This action of the soul in receiving and embracing Christ is not sluggish. It is not a state of lethargic spirituality. No for it involves the soul's most strenuous activity. This committing of the soul must become a glorious, living, energizing principle, with the mind not only perceiving, but yielding itself up with the most fervent intensity to be Christ's and to receive all the benefits of His salvation into our own souls. Faith also receives Christ into the soul as king. In all his dealings, to rule over the whole being, to have our heart's supreme confidence and affection, to receive the entire devotion of our obedience and adoration, and to rule over us and fulfill all the functions of supreme king over our whole moral being. Within our very souls, we receive Christ to live and empower there, to reign forever there, as on His own rightful throne. Many people seem to stop short of this entire and complete commitment of their whole soul to Christ. They might stop short with merely perceiving the truth, satisfied and pleased that they have learned the doctrine of the gospel. Some might go one step further and stop with being interested, with having their feelings stirred up by the great things of the gospel, thus going only to the second stage. Maybe they seem to take faith, but not Christ. They resolve to believe, but after that, they do not warmly and with all their heart welcome Christ himself into the soul. All these different steps stop short of really taking hold of Christ. None of them result in gaining the victory over the world. The true Bible doctrine of faith represents Christ as coming into the very soul. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door... I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Revelation 3.20 What could more forcibly and beautifully teach the doctrine that Christ is introduced by faith into the very soul of the believer to dwell there by his gracious presence?
Since my mind was first drawn to the subject, I have been amazed to see how long I have been in a blind state of understanding in respect to this particular view of faith. For a long time, I had scarcely seen it. But now I see it beaming forth in lines of glory on almost every page of the Bible. The Bible seems to blaze with this glorious truth. Christ in the soul, the hope of glory. Colossians 1.27 God, Christ, dwelling in our bodies as in a temple. 1 Corinthians 6.19 I am amazed that a truth so rich and so blessed would have been seen so dimly when the Bible reveals it so clearly. Christ received into the very soul by faith, and thus brought into the nearest possible relationship to our heart and life, Christ himself becoming the all-sustaining power within us, and thus securing the victory over the world, Christ living and empowering in our hearts. This is the great central truth in the plan of sanctification, and no Christian should fail to understand this as he values the victory over the world and the living communion of the soul with its Maker. Remarks 1. It is in the very nature of the case impossible that if faith receives Christ into the soul, it would not overcome the world. If the new birth actually brings the mind into this new state and brings Christ into the soul, then of course Christ will reign in that soul. The greatest affections will be surrendered most delightfully to Him, and the power of the world over that mind will be broken. Christ cannot dwell in any soul without absorbing the supreme interest of that soul. Of course, this is equivalent to giving the victory over the world. 2. He who does not regularly overcome the world is not born of God. In saying this, I do not intend to claim that a true Christian may not sometimes be overcome by sin. But I do say that overcoming the world is the general rule, and falling into sin is just the exception. This is the least that can be meant by the language of our text, as well as by similar declarations that often occur in the Bible. Just as in this passage, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, and he cannot sin because he is born of God, 1 John 3, 9, nothing less can be meant than that he cannot sin regularly, he cannot make sinning his business, and if he can sin at all, it is only occasionally and aside from the general course of his life. In the same manner, we should say of someone who is in general truthful that he is not a liar. I will not push for more than this respecting either of these passages, but for this much I must contend that the newborn souls here spoken of do in general overcome the world, 
The general fact regarding them is that they do not sin and are not in bondage to Satan. The affirmations of Scripture respecting them must at least embrace their general character. 3. What is a religion good for that does not overcome the world? What is the benefit of being born into such a religion if it leaves the world still exercising its dominion over our hearts? What good is a new birth that fails to bring us into a likeness to God, into the affection of His family and of His kingdom, and that still leaves us in bondage to the world and to Satan? What can there be of such a religion more than the name? With what reason can anyone suppose that such a religion trains his heart for heaven if it leaves him earthly-minded, carnal, and selfish? 4. We see why unbelievers have proclaimed the gospel of Christ to be a failure. You may not be aware that lately unbelievers have taken the ground that the gospel of Christ is a failure. They maintain that it professes to bring people out from the world, but fails to do so, and therefore is clearly a failure. You must observe that the Bible does indeed claim, as unbelievers say, that those who are truly born of God do overcome the world. We cannot deny this, and we do not want to deny it. If the unbeliever can show that the new birth fails to produce this result, he has carried his point, and we must yield ours. This is perfectly plain, and there can be no escape for us. However, the unbeliever is in fault in his premises. He assumes that the current Christianity of the age is an example of real religion and he builds his estimate upon this. He proves, as he thinks, and possibly truly proves, that the current Christianity does not overcome the world. We must object to his assuming that this current Christianity is real religion. For this religion of nominal professors of Christianity does not answer the descriptions given of true piety in the Word of God. Moreover, if this current type of religion were all that the gospel and the divine spirit can do for lost man, then we might as well give up the point in controversy with the unbeliever. For such a religion could not give us much evidence of coming from God and would be of very little value to man, so little as hardly to be worth contending for. Certainly, if we must accept the professedly Christian world as Bible Christians, who would not be ashamed and perplexed in attempting to confront the unbeliever, we know only too well that the great multitude of professed Christians do not overcome the world and we would be quickly disconcerted if we were to maintain that they do. Those professed Christians themselves know that they do not overcome the world. Of course, they could not testify concerning themselves 
that in their own case the power of the gospel is demonstrated. In view of facts like these, I have often been astonished to see ministers trying to persuade their people that they are really converted, trying to calm their fears and support their uncertain hopes. What a vain effort! It would seem that those same ministers must know that they themselves do not overcome the world, and they must equally well know that their people do not. How fatal, then, to the soul must be such efforts to heal the hurt of God's professed people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jeremiah 6.14 and 8.11 Let us get to the bottom of this matter, asking, Do the great majority of professed Christians really overcome the world? It is a fact beyond question that with them the things of this world are the realities, and the things of God are mere theories. Who does not know that this is the real state of large multitudes in the nominal church? Let the searching inquiry run through you now. What are those things that set your soul on fire? that stir up your warmest emotions and deeply stir your heart? Are these the things of earth or the things of heaven? Are they the things of time or the things of eternity? Are they the things of self or the things of God? How is it when you enter your private place to pray? Do you go there to seek and find God? Do you in fact find there a present God? And do you hold communion there as a friend with a friend? How is this? You should certainly know that if your condition is such that spiritual things are mere theories and opinions, then you are entirely worldly and nothing more. It would be blatant absurdity and falsehood to call you spiritually minded, and for you to consider yourself spiritual would be the most fatal and foolish self-deception. You give none of the appropriate proofs of being born of God. Your condition is not that of one who is personally acquainted with God and who loves Him personally with supreme affection. 5. Until we can put away from the minds of people that common error that the current Christianity of the Church is true Christianity, we can make only little progress in converting the world. In the first place, we cannot save the Church itself from bondage to the world in this life, nor from the dreadful doom of the hypocrite in the next. We cannot unite and arm the church in vigorous assault upon Satan's kingdom so that the world may be converted to God. We cannot even convince intelligent people of the world that our religion is from God and that it brings to fallen people a remedy for their depravity. If the common Christianity of the age is the best that can be, 
and this does not give people victory over the world, what is it good for? And if it really is of little worth or of no value at all, how can we hope to make thinking people esteem it as of great value? 6. There are only a very few unbelievers who are as much as in the dark as they claim to be on these points. There are very few of that class of people who are not acquainted with some humble Christians whose lives commend Christianity and condemn their own ungodliness. Of course, they know the truth, that there is a reality in the religion of the Bible, and they blind their own eyes selfishly and most foolishly when they try to believe that the religion of the Bible is a failure and that the Bible is therefore not true. Deep in their hearts lies the conviction that here and there are people who are real Christians, who overcome the world and live by a faith unknown to themselves. In how many cases does God set some burning examples of Christian life before those wicked, skeptical people to rebuke them for their sin and their skepticism? This might even be their own wife or their children, their neighbors or their employees. By such means, the truth is lodged in their minds, and God has a witness for himself in their consciences. I might have mentioned before a fact that occurred in the South and was told to me by a minister of the gospel who was acquainted with the circumstances of the case. There resided in that region a very worldly and a most ungodly man who held a large slave property and was also much inclined to horse racing. Unmindful of all religion and admittedly an unbeliever, he fully embraced every evil inclination. But wicked people must one day see trouble, and this man was taken sick and brought to the very gates of the grave. His weeping wife and friends gathered around his bed and began to think of having some Christian called in to pray for the dying man's soul. Husband, said the anxious wife, should I not send for our minister to pray with you before you die? No, he said. I have known him for a long time, and I have no faith in him. I have seen him too many times at horse races. He was my friend there, and I was his. But I don't want to see him now. Then who can we get? continued the wife. Send for my slave, Tom, he replied. He takes care of my horses. I have often overheard him praying, and I know he can pray. Besides, I have watched his life and his character, and I never saw anything in him inconsistent with Christian character. Call him in. I would be glad to hear him pray. Tom entered slowly and modestly, dropped his head at the door, and looked at his sick and dying master. Tom, 
said the dying skeptic. Do you ever pray? Do you know how to pray? Can you pray for your dying master and forgive him? Oh, yes, with all my heart, Tom said. And he dropped to his knees and poured out a prayer for his soul. The moral of this story is obvious. Place the skeptic on his dying bed. Let that solemn hour arrive and the inner convictions of his heart be revealed. And he knows of at least one person who is a real Christian. He knows one person whose prayers he values more than all the friendship of all his former associates. He knows now that there is such a thing as Christianity, and yet you cannot think that he has never known this before. No, he knew just as much before, but an honest hour has brought the inner convictions of his soul to light. Unbelievers generally know more than they have honesty enough to admit. 7. The great error of those who profess Christianity but are not born of God is that they are trying to be Christians without being born of God. They need to have that done to them what is said of Adam, that God breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living soul. Genesis 2, 7. Their religion has in it none of the breath of God. It is a cold, lifeless doctrine. There is none of the living vitality of God in it. It might be a heartless doctrine, and they might be convinced in their hearts that their creed is sound. But do they love that truth that they profess to believe? They think that they might possibly have zeal and they think that their zeal is right and their hearts are right. But are their souls on fire for God and His cause? Where are they, and what are they doing? Are they discussing some sentimental theory, or are they defending it at the point of the sword? Do they care for souls? Do their hearts tremble for the interests of Zion? Do their very nerves quiver under the mighty power of God's truth? Does their love for God and for souls set their doctrine and their creeds on fire so that every truth burns in their souls and glows forth from their very faces? If so, then you will not see them absent from the prayer meetings and neglecting to speak to others about Christ but you will see that divine things take hold of their souls with overwhelming interest and power. You will see them as living Christians, burning and shining lights in the world. Brethren, it cannot be too strongly impressed on every mind 
that the definitive characteristic of true Christianity is power, not apathy. And its indispensable element is life, not death.